Sky Watchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Patricia. And I'm Bryony. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in August in this Cosmic Diary. We'd like to give a special mention and our thanks to Anushka Sinner, one of our work experience students this summer who helped put the astronomical highlights in this Cosmic Diary together for us. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. If you only go stargazing once in a blue moon, Well, now's the time to do it. The 22nd of August will treat us to not only a full moon, but a blue one at that. The last blue moon we had coincidentally fell on Halloween of last year and was called blue because it was the second full moon of October 2020. This August full moon is called a blue moon for a different reason, because it is the third full moon of a season that will have four full moons in total. This usually happens once every two or three years, which is where the phrase once in a blue moon comes from. And it's worth noting that just like the April pink moon, August's blue moon will be only blue in name. For the moon to actually appear the colour blue, the Earth's atmosphere would have to have lots of particles wider than around 900 nanometers in it. As at that size, particles are really great at scattering red light away, thus allowing the human eye to capture blue light being reflected off the moon. Now, these particles are usually only present after a wildfire or a volcanic eruption, so perhaps it's best that literal blue moons are so rare. The gas giants of our solar system, Jupiter and Saturn, will both reach full opposition in the month of August too. The planet's great masses not only help regulate the Earth's orbit, and hence our climate, but also protect us from asteroids and other bodies. When a planet is in opposition, it means the Earth is directly between it and the Sun, making it appear bigger and brighter to us. While the planets will be visible to the naked eye, this is a great time to grab a telescope or even just a pair of binoculars to check them out up close. Saturn reaches opposition at around 7 a.m. BST on the 2nd of August, but as it won't actually be visible in the UK skies then, don't bother setting your clocks. Saturn will be bright and beautiful all of that week and indeed for the rest of the month. So head outside any evening that week and take a look in the southeast around 10 p.m. Jupiter will be hot on its heels, reaching opposition at midnight BST on the 19th, 20th of August. But as with Saturn earlier in the month, on any of the nights around that date, Jupiter will be shining brightly in the southeastern evening sky. The summer brings with it the Summer Triangle, an asterism made up of the stars Vega, Deneb and Altair. These are the brightest stars of the constellations Lyra, Cygnus and Aquila, respectively. Vega is the brightest star in the Summer Triangle and, despite being younger than our solar system, is actually around twice the size of our Sun. Like the Sun, Vega is predominantly composed of hydrogen and is a main sequence star, which means that it is fusing hydrogen at its core to form helium, releasing enormous amounts of energy in this process. Vega is one of the brightest stars in the sky and is very near to our current North Star, Polaris. 
I say our current North Star, as this actually changes over the course of millennia, thanks to the Earth's precession, with this wobble altering where in the sky the Earth's axis of rotation is pointing towards. So, several thousand years ago, Vega was actually the North Star, not Polaris. And, thanks to this precession, Vega will be again in around 12,000 years' time. One of the most exciting events of August is the annual Perseids meteor shower, peaking from the 11th to the 13th at up to 60 meteors per hour. With the waxing crescent moon setting nice and early, this should be an excellent show. The radiant for this cosmic show lies in the Perseus constellation, which for those of us in the UK is almost circumpolar, meaning it never fully sets, giving us all night to look up, though best views do come in the wee hours of the night. Meteor showers typically occur when debris from larger asteroids or comets enter the Earth's atmosphere and begin to heat up due to the friction created against air particles. The origin of the Perseids was discovered in 1862 by two astronomers independently of each other, and so was named after them both as the Swift-Tuttle Comet. A relatively large comet at around 26 kilometers across, it's thought to be around twice the size of the asteroid that may have killed the dinosaurs. Luckily for us, Swift-Tuttle is not on a collision course with Earth, instead orbiting the Sun once every 133 years, and was largely visible from Earth in 1992. With long nights still the norm for most of the southern hemisphere, there's plenty of chances to look out into the night sky. See if you can find the constellation of Scorpius, with the bright red star of Antares at its heart. To some Māori iwi, or nations of New Zealand, Antares is Rehua, a very powerful god who lives in the highest of the heavens. Antares itself is actually a binary star system made up of a dying red supergiant star, Antares A, and a younger blue-white main sequence companion, Antares B. If you have a relatively good telescope, see if you can resolve them, that is, separate them into their two stars rather than just the one that we see with our naked eyes. Because of the contrast between the two stars, when you resolve them through a telescope, Antares B can actually appear almost green in colour. There are a number of star clusters in the constellation of Scorpius, including the globular cluster M4 right next to Antares, and the open cluster NGC 6281, higher up near the tail of the scorpion. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rng.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. Welcome everyone to our cosmic news part of the podcast. Uh, of course, every month, Bryony and I choose a story that's broken either in astronomy or space exploration a story that we found interesting and then we talk to you about it and of course we have the very important twitter battle i like that we've gone from being from, from trying to pretend that it's not a competition to just straight up calling it a twitter battle which is what it is it, it is what it is because let's face it that's what it's come down to it's it's it's, it's now a competition which I know we shouldn't be competing because at the end of the day, both stories are very good. It's true. It's true. But we want our story to win. 
It's true. I don't know why I agreed. I sort of leaned into this competition aspect because you have a much, much better track record than me. Well, I mean, it's always a time for you to uh, catch up, perhaps take over. I mean, perhaps we need to see what the results of last month's Twitter poll. What an excellent segue there, Patricia. Please tell us. (laughs) Well, let's let's do a recap. So uh, last month, I spoke about the fantastic images that the Juno spacecraft had sent back of Ganymede. And uh, subsequent actually to that, um, I think it was a few days ago, NASA put together this really amazing flyby video incorporating all of the images from the Ganymede flyover through to Juno making this really close pass to Jupiter. So if you haven't seen this video, please, please go and have a look at it. It just... It's amazing, especially seeing Jupiter up close. It's it's basically giving you a bird's eye view of this flight. And it's just, you can sort of imagine yourself on a spacecraft. So yes, if you haven't seen it, please do go and have a look at that. But back to the Twitter poll, um, to what, you know, Twitter battle. Uh, so yes, I spoke about Juno's images of Ganymede. And of course, Bryony, you spoke uh, interestingly about a possible solution to the mystery of the dimming of Betelgeuse. So looking at the, you know, the recent work that had come out to explain that. So we had a good number of votes on this poll. And I can say that the the winner of the poll got 76%. So that's a, that's a big number. Another question is which story won? Now, now, do I keep Bryony waiting until the end of this or do I tell her now? Oh, don't you dare. You tell me now. I must know. Bryony, you won. Yay. To be fair. Well done, Bryony. Very good story. Thank you. I mean, Beetlejuice is dimming. It really did get so much media attention when it happened. I mean, we were in the, we were still in the office at that time. I actually only just started at the observatory really when it. That is true. Yeah, got going. So um, we we were quite excited um, about it, and I have to admit, it was it was just one another thing when we went into lockdown. It was like, oh, lockdown is uh, is beginning, and of course, Betelgeuse is getting brighter again. Of course, you know, because we can't catch a break. Uh, so I, it, again, if um, to those listening to our podcast, if you did miss the previous month's podcast, please do go and have a listen to it because it is very interesting. The, the uh, idea of what caused this observed dimming out at um, Beetlejuice so please do go and have a listen to that podcast if you have not already done so but of course it is time for us now to talk about the stories that we've chosen for this month so I I, it seemed like there was there were some stories that came out but maybe it was a little bit of a quiet month but Bryony why don't you go first and tell us what you've chosen yeah I'll, I'll, I'll go first so true to form this month I am straying away from the solar system, 300 light years away to be exact, looking at the exoplanet Tycho 8998-760-1. A name that just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to be calling it Tycho 8998-B from now on. That, that makes it easier yeah i think so i, think so. <laughs> I mean and pe- perhaps i mean you might cover it but um it's something i i know whenever we talk to people about exoplanets is they often wonder where does that name come from because i think they often look towards our own solar system and say well we've got easy planet names and then we're looking at exoplanets and they have very long names so uh Bridie, how how exactly does that name come about for for an exoplanet um so the way that exoplanets get their name is it's just from the name of their star 
and then you just add a B if they're the first exoplanet we've discovered, a C if they're the second, all the way, so on and so forth. And, and the reason why the stars have such long names is because well, we just have found so many stars that the way that we name them is just by this sequence of letters and numbers. It's it's that simple. We've just we found so much that we just we just need to. So looking at this exoplanet, or looking at any exoplanet really, a key question that we want to ask is, well, what is it made of? Uh, we can't exactly just directly look at it and see, wow, it's made of this rock. Uh, and we can't go there and get a sample of it to analyze in a lab either. So the method that we typically use is spectroscopy. So we look at the spectrum from the exoplanet in some way, shape or form, and then we match that up to known spectra from the Earth. So spectra from known elements and molecules and see if we have any matches. Now, so far, we've always been looking at different molecules um, and different elements. But just last week, for the first time, a research group from Leiden Observatory in the Netherlands, my apologies if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, they were actually able to measure not just different molecules and different elements, but different isotopes of carbon around this exoplanet Tycho 8998. That's, that's huge. Yeah, so uh, for those of you who don't know, isotopes are sort of different forms of elements with differing numbers of neutrons. So different elements have different numbers of protons inside their nucleus, and they also have a certain number of neutrons. Um, but it's the proton number that distinguishes element from element. It's the neutron number that distinguishes the different isotopes within that element. And this isotope number does have some effects on the properties of the element, but not so much as obviously different elements do. Uh, and so because of that, it is a little bit trickier for us to distinguish between different isotopes um, of the same element compared to different elements. So what were they actually looking at? Well, they were looking at carbon 12 and carbon 13 isotopes around this planet. So it's quite fun about this particular planet, Tycho 8998b, it's a mouthful every time, even the shortened name is a mouthful, uh, is actually the way that this planet was discovered. It was discovered through the direct imaging technique. Ooh, and uh, I mean, that is a, it, it's quite challenging to do that because you've got a, you've got a very bright star. Oh, yes. And and obviously, as we know, p p the way we can see things is because, for example, planets in our solar system, they're reflecting light. But it's that whole kind of, the I suppose the analogy is imagine staring into a floodlight and trying to spot maybe a, a little moth flying nearby. And you've got this massive, you know, floodlight in your face and you're trying to see, to see that. So whenever we find planets that are done with this method, that's actually a huge achievement. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And there's some very... Uh, I guess specific criteria that uh, that star systems have to meet in order for us to be able to use this method. Now, um, as Patricia was kind of alluding to, you you need to block out that central light. Uh, so we use this thing called a coronagraph. Usually, there are other methods, but this one they were using the uh, sphere, so a spectropolymetric high contrast exoplanet research telescope sphere. It was a bit of a tortured acronym, but they got there in the end. Uh, so it uses a coronagraph to block out the light from the central star. Um, so that light from any exoplanets that are around that star can be seen. Now, in order for there to be enough light coming from the exoplanet, the exoplanet must be very, very hot. And so the star system must be very young. In fact, we estimate that this star system, Tycho 899 one 
Oh, got there very quickly. I'm getting better at this. Uh, we estimate it's only about 17 million years old compared to our sun, which is what, over a hundred times that. So, you know, it's quite a young, a young system. Um, and so because it's so young, it's still forming. In fact, this planet we think is still accreting. It's still kind of being formed. Um, and so because of that, it's emitting quite a lot in the near infrared and a bit in the optical wavelengths. And so when we block out that central region, we can still get enough light from this exoplanet to detect it. Now, the other thing is that the exoplanet, if it's to be detected by a direct imaging, it must be very far away from its host star. Because we're blocking out that central region, well, in order for us to not block out the exoplanet, it needs to be very far away. And this star is orbiting at a distance of around 160 astronomical units away from its star. So that's 160 times further away from its star that's, than that's our sun is. That's a long way from its star, isn't it, Brian? Oh yeah, it is very, a very, like we, we don't even know. I think what what was um far far. I was going to say out. I think far far out was that was I want to say one hundred and forty odd. Yeah, or something uh, like that. So yeah, the, the most distant solar system object that we've discovered that we talked about a few months ago, it's not even one hundred and sixty AU away from our sun. So this this planet is very very far away. And another thing is, while I've been calling this a planet, it's actually maybe well maybe maybe not a planet. It is around. We estimate that it's around 14 Jupiter masses, which technically puts it in the range of being a brown dwarf. Yeah. Now, oh. brown dwarfs are failed stars, or I guess failed Jupiters, if you will. Um, so essentially, when we have a look at what Jupiter is made of, Jupiter, the planet, it's actually made of pretty much the same stuff that our sun is. It's just like a lot smaller, like a lot, a lot smaller. And because it's so much smaller, it's not able to undergo nuclear fusion at its center like our sun does. And really that's the main difference between a gas giant like Jupiter and our sun is just whether or not it can perform nuclear fusion. And if it can't, then we call it a planet. But once you get above around 11 Jupiter masses, you start to be in this really strange sort of wasteland, if you're between around 11, well, around like 11 to 14 Jupiter masses up until about 80 Jupiter masses, you're in this really strange wasteland where objects are not able to fuse hydrogen, but they might be able to maybe fuse some heavy, they may be able to fuse some deuterium, they may be able to do a bit of lithium fusion maybe, maybe uh, at the higher end um, and above, uh, I think it's around 80 Jupiter masses, we think they should be completely happy to do at least some nuclear fusion. That's getting into your, your real, real ultra, ultra cool dwarf territory. Um, so this, we say it's a planet, it's going around a very bright star, um, but it is, it is kind of in this range, it's almost in this range where we would say, well, is this a star? Is this a planet? Is this this strange object that we call a brown dwarf? Because they're not really stars, but they're not really planets either because they can do some kind of fusion, just not a lot. And we haven't been able to study them very much to see what the extent of their fusion capabilities are. Um, but brown dwarfs is a completely different really topic to what I want to talk about here. Just something that's interesting to say, because what I really want to talk about is the actual discovery of these different isotopes of carbon, which is just amazing. I think it's just absolutely phenomenal. You know, we are looking at something that is like 300 light years away. So this is like what, around three, what, 3,000 trillion kilometers away from us, a little less than that. It's just a bit 
far away. Yeah, and we can say, oh, no, that's a, it's got different isotopes of carbon around it. We've detected different isotopes of carbon and the different abundances of those isotopes. So that's the thing. When we have a look in our solar system, we'll, we, we can detect different isotopes quite quite easily. And something that we are quite interested in looking at is the ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-13. Carbon-12, it's just, it's something that our bodies, well, organic things seem to prefer to carbon-13. It just kind of is. But apart from that, what's quite interesting is that the uh, carbon-12 to carbon-13 ratio in our solar system is around 89. But in the interstellar medium, it's significantly lower. It's more like 70. And around the local interstellar medium of this star, Tycho 899-8760-1, it is even lower. It's around 68. So when Leiden Observatory was observing you know, the different carbon isotopes, they discovered that actually the ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-13 is a lot lower around this exoplanet. It's actually around 30. So okay. off, we have this massive discrepancy between the, the abundances of carbon isotopes in the local interstellar medium uh, compared to this quite young exoplanet. And that's we, we, we think that at this stage, at least, it should be kind of uh, in step, at least, with what's around it. And so the question is, well, how and why? What's going on here? Is this just an error? Yeah. Now, it's actually worth, before I keep going, it's worth mentioning that they weren't actually looking at carbon itself. They were looking at carbon monoxide. So 12, uh, 12 CO um, and 13 CO, they share very, much, very, very similar chemical properties, but they actually do have slightly, ever so slightly um, different vibrational and rotational modes. And that's how we're able to detect them in any way at all at this distance. So basically when they were looking at the spectrum from this exoplanet, so looking at it through direct imaging, they were able to look at the opacity, so not the opposite of the transparency, the, the opacity of um, the surrounding sort of gas and dust, the atmosphere of this exoplanet. Um, and they were able to apply this FIT program to say, okay, well, let's assume that almost all the carbon in there is, uh, is carbon-12 what fit do you get from this? Okay. And then they had another model which said, okay, now instead of assuming it's all carbon 12, assume that some percentage of it, you figure out how much is carbon 13. And from that, that's how they managed to get a fit that fit really, really nicely. They're talking like a six sigma signal. For reference, um, to declare like that you've found something in particle physics, um, yeah. Higgs boson, that was only five sigma. Six sigma is like ridiculous. So this, it's really, really, really um, high signal. Um, so, you know, they were like, okay, cool, there's, it's there. But then they kept getting this weird thing, which was saying that, you know, instead of the uh, the, the ratio, the, the C12 to C13 ratio being around, um, you know, they're sort of expecting it to be somewhere between like 60 and 70, around 68. It was 30, but they think they have an answer as to Ooh. why that is which is why this is so cool because it's not just going wow look at this amazing thing we can do we did it and we found something weird but also we can answer what that is um, and to be honest to fully explain it you need quite a lot of chemistry that in all honesty I don't have I fell down a bit of a rabbit hole going through this um, yeah. and realized that uh, I would not be able to properly explain it in in the podcast I couldn't even really find anywhere properly explaining it but essentially um from a sort of broad overview, 
because this exoplanet likely formed so far away from its star, I mean, it's a really young, uh, really young exoplanet. We think it's still accreting um, and it's, it's 160 astronomical units away from its star. So it, it probably formed quite far out. It probably formed beyond what is called the CO snow line. Now the snow line, for example, the water snow line in our system, I can't remember exactly where it is in our solar system, I but it's probably just before Jupiter. I think, is it, it, I think, I think it's around think it's about past there? the asteroid belt a little bit, but I can't yeah. remember exactly where it is. But the point of it is though, that the, um, the water snow line is the area beyond so the, the boundary where if you go further away from your star than that, water will be frozen. You will not find it in a liquid state unless there's like a whole lot more stuff going on. So that's your water snow line. Now the CO snow line, the carbon monoxide snow line, beyond that, uh, all carbon monoxide that you find will be frozen in, um, in ices. And it turns out that because of some chemistry that I don't understand, but these guys clearly do, that very slightly favors carbon 13 rather than carbon 12. And so because of that, they think that they ended up with more of this, with, with more carbon-13 kind of being frozen into, uh, like around this, uh, the atmosphere of this planet. And that's why the carbon-12, carbon-13 ratio is lower, because there's more carbon-13, because it formed so far away from its star, beyond this snow line. I mean, that's really interesting, because as you say, it's sometimes it's a case where sort of a discovery is made and you know the results are published and then they may not necessarily have a reason at that time to explain it but they get the paper out there you know to get the scientific community talking about it get other people interested in it so that, that you know someone might come along and model that but this is quite nice that they've you know they did the observations they made the discovery they did the modeling and have a, an idea or a suggestion of what might be causing that you know that discrepancy that they're seeing in that ratio around that exoplanet versus what they're what they saw or observed in they say in the in for that position in space in its local relative interstellar medium so that it's really interesting that they've done been able to do all of that and i think yeah, that's, that's pretty it, impressive yeah and it's just it was just so neat just reading it all and just being like oh it's just it's all here now to be fair this is something that people from um Leiden observatory have been doing for quite a while. Um, they had quite a few papers that were uh, you know, published a few years ago, looking at um, simulated data and saying, okay, well, actually, you know, if we could get this data, we could run these programs on it to isolate specific isotopes. And one of those was carbon monoxide. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's something that's been in the works with them clearly for a very long time, but it's really exciting. They finally found, you know, a star and a planet that was amenable to that that they were able to observe i think they only did two nights of observing as well it was like 4th and 17th of july or something like they didn't observe for very long they did they did a very they did a very nice job um but i think what's quite fun about this is that it really does open up the door to i mean while we have these answers as to like why it could be we also have a lot more questions now it's like okay well one thing can we now use this when we look at other planets when we're particularly looking at young stars, um, where we take a look at the uh, the exoplanets with direct imaging, can we have a look at those and say, okay, well, we think that because of this, that you know, the the difference between, say, for example, the isotope abundances between the 
planet uh, and the local interstellar medium, well, we think it might have formed in this part or in this part. Maybe it formed closer to its star, maybe it formed further away, because we think that in our solar system, at least, um, the gas giants formed much closer to our sun and then moved further like migrated outwards yeah, yeah um and so it's like well does that happen with other planets uh, and other solar systems and can we use this maybe as a marker for it? and can we use this for other planets in general can we look at isotope abundances and use this as yet another method of i guess benchmarking where things might have originated from because it, it seems really strange in some ways when you think about we're talking about something that's 17 million years old that's super super young because these things take such a long time we really really do struggle to actually pinpoint down exactly when things happen exactly yeah. what processes are happening so things like this where we're saying okay well this seems to be affected by where it formed and also potentially when we're looking at it well this is a really really exciting potentially new tool for um i guess astrochemists exoplanetary chemists yeah i think i mean yeah for, uh, we'll astrochemistry in general i suppose yeah, yeah, I, yeah but it is so. really fascinating that you can potentially gather as you say gather insights into understanding planetary formation in in other systems by you know looking at what's going on because let's face it we thought we understood so uh, planetary system formation because we looked at our own solar system and said yep this makes sense and then we discovered other planetary systems and realized no. Oh, we don't understand much. Not at all. I mean, at first we we you know, we thought that we were the the benchmark, and then we we thought, oh, planetary systems are super rare. Then, but it turns out that the planetary systems in general are not super rare. Planetary systems with as many planets as we have seem to be super rare. But again, it's all about the more we learn, the more we find. Quite frankly, yeah. and it, it really is in exoplanetary research just a matter of just keep looking, and you'll probably find more stuff. Um, this is super exciting that it's a way not just to find more stuff but to learn more about the stuff that we find we love science we really do don't we Bryony? in case you couldn't tell we do <laughs> oh but yeah so that's my story um for this week is yeah the uh strange uh strange abundances strange ratios of carbon isotopes around uh tycho 899-760-1b you know, you, you are going to be waking up at about three o'clock tomorrow morning and all you're going to be shouting out is that, is that name and number. Oh, that's a fantastic story, uh, Bryony. Really, really amazing what uh, we, we can do, considering we can't exactly reach out and go and sample that, you know, particular mm -hmm. area because it's just a little bit far away from us. So it's just, tiny bit, just, just a little. Just, tiny, just, tiny bit. Just, just a little. Um, not enough to get Mars rocks, let alone. <laughs> yeah. That that is very true. Well, I was just about to say, and you like to go far away from home. I like to stay close to home. Um, and today's story is no different. Uh, I would say usually I would probably pick stories that took place in our local backyard. Uh, this is a story that's taking place in our kitchen, Barney. Oh, wow. All right. Well, that's, I mean, that's how close it is. <laughs> I'm hungry. Okay, Patricia. Uh, so it's a story that popped up probably, I'm um, just thinking about the time of recording, about a month ago, maybe uh, four to six weeks ago uh, from time of recording. And it popped up and then it seemed to disappear. But it was a very important story. And my story is about the Hubble Space Telescope. Oh, no. Oh, because no. Because Hubble was in trouble. 
Hubble bubble toil and trouble. I we we, we get, I'm going to throw in some. I, okay, I've I've not thrown in many jokes, but I should have thought of that. So I'm furious with myself for not thinking about that one. That's what I'm here for. That, that's why we keep you around, Bryony. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm going to I'll dive into uh, you know more details a bit later on. But as just as a quick summary, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope was for a period of time in safe mode and not operational. And when I say period of time was probably four to six weeks uh, because it turned out there'd been a computer shutdown on board Hubble, which forced the telescope into safe mode. Now, NASA had been trying all sorts of fixes, none of which worked. And about a week ago, again, at the time that we're recording this podcast, NASA said they think they knew what the problem was and we're going to attempt a fix. Has the fix worked? I'm we'll have to wait fingers. until you'll have to wait until the end of the story. Oh, Patricia. Well, I mean, look, <laughs> you you teased me at the start and you're going to keep on teasing me. So come on, come on then. Let's 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 hear the whole story, but just so you know, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed the entire time. Well, you do that, Bryony, because we might need it. Did I did I just did I just say something that I shouldn't have said? No, we'll we'll see. But uh, I just wanted to talk about this particular story because in over 30 years of operation, this is the most serious glitch the Hubble Space Telescope has ever had. Whoa. And it's the most concerning. Oh no. As we all know, the Hubble Space Telescope has been instrumental in helping us understand our universe and some of the most iconic images we've seen you know the the iconic images that get published in newspapers and magazines have come from Hubble uh, the Hubble Space Telescope was launched into space in 1990 and it was launched on board the space shuttle Discovery and here's an interesting fact in case people didn't know this the Hubble Space Telescope was actually designed to fit snugly inside the payload bay of the space shuttle because that was the only way they could actually launch a telescope was using the space shuttle so it's specifically designed to fit the size of the payload bay um, of the space shuttle also just fun fact before we continue Hubble's older than me I'm not going to comment on my age in relation to Hubble. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> I, I've made a bit of a sport making Patricia feel old the past few months. So, you know, I just wanted to throw that one out there. It hurts, Bryony. It hurts. Anyway, moving onwards. <laughs> um, if you're familiar with the Hubble Space Telescope's observing history, you'll know that when the very first image taken by Hubble was released, it was a huge disappointment because... It was a big problem with the telescope. Uh, in fact, the image that was released was an image of the core of the galaxy M100. And rather than being this expected, spectacularly sharp image of a galaxy, it was blurry. Oh, very blurry. It was very much blurry. And it turned out that the equipment that had been used during the production or the grinding of the primary mirror for the Hubble Space Telescope was not calibrated properly. Oh. And what this meant was that the primary mirror had a defect that was one fiftieth of the thickness of a human hair. Now, even though that sounds incredibly tiny, it was still big enough to result in an out of focus blurry image. So here's the thing, though, and this was what was great about Hubble. 
and having the space shuttle was that the Hubble Space Telescope was designed to be serviceable. So Hubble actually almost only around 547 or 540, it just depends, kilometers above the Earth. So this meant that if they needed to service Hubble, they could just send the space shuttle up. So the space shuttle could head up to the Hubble Space Telescope to service it. So when they realized that Hubble had this major flaw um, in its optics, scientists obviously on the ground had to work on a fix. And what they did was they effectively made corrective glasses for the Hubble Space Telescope, which is which I love. I love that description was like they had to make corrective glasses for it. And now, remember I said Hubble was launched in 1990, right? Mm -hmm. This fix was only installed in 1993. Wow. I mean, look, when you have budget, when you have telescopes that cost that much to get up, even three years of uh, on operation is quite a lot. But I I really do think, this is really amazing that it was designed to be serviced because this is something that is a really big deal in space exploration and satellites. People are often amazed at how ancient some of the technology that we use on spacecraft is. And the reason yeah. for that is because we have to know that it's definitely going to work. Like, yeah. I, I can't remember how, but it's, you know, it's decades old, the stuff that's on the Mars rovers, because all the bugs have been worked out. They know that it's fine. They don't have to worry about it suddenly breaking. Yeah. Uh, because because they know they can't fix it. But that was one of the really great things about Hubble is that it was designed to be fixable. Yeah. So we were so, able to do some really cutting-edge stuff with it because Exactly. And so although that fix was only installed in 1993, Hubble actually did do science operations between 1990 and 1993. Oh. But what scientists had to do was they had to use computers to correct the blurry images. So that was extra processing time they had to go into, obviously, correct that. But post-1993 once that fix was installed Hubble was then operating how scientists had expected it to so it was returning these brilliant uh, images and over the years there have been many servicing missions to the Hubble Space Telescope so uh, instruments have been added and replaced failed or degraded spacecraft components were replaced uh, stabilizing gyros on Hubble which are very important have also been replaced now here's the kicker though the final servicing mission on the Hubble Space Telescope took place in or took place in 2009 now, quite a lot was done at that point during this final servicing mission to prolong the life of the telescope. And this included putting in new batteries, new gyroscopes, a new science computer, etc., etc. And there's a good reason why I said this is a final servicing mission, because a space shuttle was retired. And NASA currently has no way to service the Hubble Space Telescope. And I don't think there is an orbital vehicle that could fly out to Hubble to fix it. I don't think so. Not at, yeah, not, so not at the time of recording. Certainly not, unless they're working on something that I don't know about. So back to that problem with Hubble. So basically on June 13th, the payload computer on board Hubble stopped working and the telescope went into safe mode. Now, this is very good that it does this. It you know, detects a problem, puts the telescope in safe mode, and then it's up to ground operations to try and figure out what's going on. <laughs> but here's a kicker, Brian. This computer 
called a NASA Standard Computer Dash One or NSSC Dash One, which to my brain, and I'm sure to Brian is you immediately go, that sounds like it's out of Star Trek. Yeah. It sounds like yeah. it should be <laughs> should it be does. Star Trek. Um this computer was built in the 1980s. Okay. I mean it has to be if it went up in 1990, yeah. So when they were looking at obviously you know the telemetry that came down the initial indication suggested there was a degrading memory module Mm. so the good thing is is when you build something like this you build a backup system just a few just you know just just a few so what the operations team decided to do was okay let's try and switch up to the backup memory module however the command to initiate that backup module failed to complete oh no So on June 17th, NASA thought, okay, let's try to bring both memory modules back online. That didn't work either. Over the following weeks, they uh, looked at switching on backup hardware. And, you know, there's a lot to think about because what you're basically saying is we're going to shut down effectively all the primary stuff and switch to the backup stuff. But there are factors associated with that. There are risks that can come with doing that. But uh, it, it actually it turns out it's a week ago at the time of recording on July 14th, NASA announced that they thought, thought, you know, finally they found the root cause of the problem. Yes. What was it? So they suspected it was a power control unit. And what the power control unit does is it ensures that there's a steady supply of power to the payload computer. So what they said they were going to then do on July 15th was switch over to the backup payload computer, which contains a separate backup power control unit. Yeah. And if everything goes according to plan on that fix, what it would mean is that normal science operations would then be able to resume on Hubble. So has it worked? I see Brian is all fingers crossed. It has worked. Yes. Oh, thank goodness. Hubble is back online. Science operations have resumed. This is, as you can imagine, it is a huge, huge relief because at the moment, we do not have another telescope in space that can do what Hubble does. We are still waiting for the James Webb Space Telescope to launch, which has been delayed so many times. Um, I've already spotted that this year's launch has already been pushed back a little bit. It's now only uh, November this year. That is the current planned launch date. But there's a thing to note about James Webb. James Webb's orbit where it's going to be parked in space is definitely not serviceable oh of course because it's being put it's in lagrange point it is it's going to be out in one of those lagrangian points which means okay and i i i'm not gonna be negative nancy i'm gonna be positive pat which that sounds there we go there we go if how, well, if the James Webb Space Telescope launches and everything goes fine, fingers crossed, everything crossed, it goes fine. If it gets to where it needs to go, it reaches that position, but it doesn't switch on or a component fails, we cannot fix it. Okay, so this is just something to bear in mind. So 
the reason why I wanted to speak about Hubble was Hubble is such an important telescope. You know, it, it's it, so much amazing stuff has come from it and it is not going to last forever. And that's really sad to think about because Hubble, especially for me, every image I've seen for the most part, with the exception of space exploration, you know, missions and that, but those images have come from Hubble. And one day it will not be operational anymore. And we will need to have that sort of successor. I know James Webb is not usually referred to as a successor to Hubble. It's kind of sort of supposed to be, you know, in parallel to Hubble. But we have to bear in mind that Hubble is not going to be around forever, which is really sad. Um, could we potentially, can you know, maybe send a spacecraft up to repair Hubble? I really hope so. I, I, I mean, if there was ever a reason to be like, hey, guys, let's uh, bring on one of the space shuttles out and get it back up there and go fix Hubble, that would be very nice. But I, in all fairness, Hubble was not designed to last forever. I think the fact that Hubble's been operational for so long is very impressive and testament to its original design and obviously all the subsequent servicing missions that went up to it. But I think this story and the fact that you know they this was as i said at the beginning the most serious glitch that hubble has had in 30 years of operations just made me really sad at the prospect that if had if none of these fixes had worked briny hubble would not have been operational anymore that's that's just that's tragic both from a scientific point of view but also from a public engagement point of view like the pictures that come from hubble are without parallel it is it is done so much not just for you know science but also for public engagement like so many people who listen to this podcast i'm sure will remember seeing a beautiful amazing image particularly if they're like around uh, our age patricia yeah they will that will no doubt have been one of their first glimpses of science one of these incredible images taken from hubble and for that to be no more with no replacement, I mean, it, it makes me sad. And I, it, it is a bit, I think, potentially short-sighted. I think that it's one of those things where, you know, you, you look back again at even in the 60s and the 70s, the space yeah. stations, and then that sort of died down because there wasn't this political pressure for it. Um, and then it sort of, some things had to be wound up again, you know, we talk about the space shuttle, this... Then that got wound down as well because it was sort of thought, okay, no, well, we've got what we need. But, you know, if we want to continue to push boundaries, we need to continually innovate and we need to be willing to fund that innovation. Yeah. And I, I think you've highlighted the key issues that, I mean, it's probably true for all space agencies, but particularly for NASA, they, they have to fight every single year to receive funding to continue and it is a detriment to science because and uh, it's very difficult because often and i'm sure you've had this question asked to you bryony when we've done you know planetarium shows and that because people always say to us well why should all the money keep going to putting these expensive spacecraft out into space or putting a telescope into orbit and that because it doesn't benefit people on the ground the truth is it does because a lot of the engineering that goes into designing these um, pieces of equipment into the instrumentation inevitably filter out there are many examples of things that were designed for astronomy 
that have made huge impacts in the medical world. It's true. That's a big, it's a big thing because yeah, it is designed to be pretty robust. And um, sometimes the software that is designed to do data analysis, it was purely designed for astronomy. They've realized with a slight tweak, that same software can be used to look for tumorous cells. Yeah, a lot of software, particularly with astronomy, yeah. because it's used to process big data, Yeah, it's useful for, well, big data. I mean, I, can, I don't think I have enough fingers to count the number of uh, astrophysicists, either with just, just master's degrees or with PhDs, who've gone into either finance or big data because, well, they, you know, they, they have the tools to do it. And I think... Another thing is is that just because something doesn't have immediate benefit, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. And I think yeah. that that's one of the really cool things about I think you know, modern humanity, if you will, is that we have so many of our basic needs met. We can go out and pursue things for fun. We can say we would like to know these things. We would like to understand, and we are able to dedicate things to that. We are able to go. Yeah. This is worth it if not because it is going to feed us tomorrow, but because it will either give us a reason to want to do things in the future yeah, or because it will help in the future. And always just, as I like to tell people as well, it always just takes that one image that can convert someone into a scientist. And I think Hubble's images have been responsible for perhaps converting many people to astronomy and space exploration and just that curiosity about the universe and, and trying to understand everything really. So, you know, going back to Hubble, it's, I think all of this is just a reminder that you, you get so used to Hubble being there that they thought that there is going to be a day where there will not be, there will not be a Hubble, but I'm going to say that I really hope that however long, we can keep Hubble operational for that is able to continue to deliver science in, in that time period as well. And we do look forward to James Webb launching this year, I'm going to say in November and the science that will come from that. But I, I do agree with you, Bryony. I think that it would have been nice to have had uh, a proper successor I, for lack of a better description, I think for, for Hubble. So maybe Hubble's twin or something like that just to be like you know thanks Hubble for you know those great memories and here's new generation Hubble or something like that but there's plenty of other scientists who work with Hubble I mean I'm, I'm sure we can find a couple you know we'll, we'll name one after you but there you go Bryony we'll perfect thank you yeah because you know Bryony that's just it rolls off the tongue well it's a lot easier than your planet name which was Tycho 899-8760-1b there we have it. it. We've proved that Bryony has now got that planet name ingrained in her brain and perhaps into our listeners' brains as well. But there we go. Those are our two stories for uh, this month. Very exciting stories. And I think our Twitter battle is going to be quite heated. Um, but yes, please do go onto our Twitter account at ROG Astronomers and you'll find the poll. Please do cast your vote for your favorite story. And also... Are there any stories that you'd like us to talk about? I think we do welcome uh, suggestions or if there's something you've read about that you think might you'd like us to talk about, then let us know. Again, just tweet us at ROG Astronomers. Uh, but with that, Bryony, I think we have reached the end of this month's podcast. I think we have. 
Thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.